every property that we have, the property values around our properties go up. People think there's an affordable housing going in or a homeless housing community or even drug treatment, their values are gonna go down. And every single property we've ever built, property values go up, crime goes down. Those are the three things neighborhoods do. We generally have to convince the neighborhood that we're gonna increase their property values, we're gonna reduce crime, and we're gonna respond to their needs when they want it. And if we have time to do that, we're successful. <laughs> Hey everybody, welcome back to the Vitalist Spark Podcast. I'm your host, John Ford, and today we've got the first of a two-part series on housing and health. Vitalist was fortunate enough to host four passionate practitioners from the continuum of housing services focused on health and well-being. These folks generously gave their time to speak directly with our board of trustees, and we captured it all so that you could learn more about the great work that's going on here in Arizona. We've taken that hour-long meeting and edited it into two parts. This episode features emergency shelters, transitional housing, and permanent supportive housing, including some great urban infill projects that mix affordable and market rate units. Our next episode will venture further into the affordable rental and home ownership realms. In both parts, you'll learn about exciting projects and meet inspiring and passionate people. And like always, it'll happen in about the space of your daily commute. In the show notes, we've got lots of links for you, slides that were used by the presenters, bios for each presenter, and a link to the housing continuum that is the container for this two-part presentation. Be sure to check those out as you listen. So let's get to it. Please join my colleague, C.J. Eisenbart-Hager, as we bring you part one of this fascinating dialogue. It's time to meet the people focused on effective, affordable solutions for health and well-being through housing. We're really pleased that you are able to join us. We know that housing impacts a person and their health on three different levels. We know the condition of the housing is very important to the health of the individual. We also know that the neighborhood context impacts the access that that person and family has to important resources that help them be healthy in their day-to-day lives. And then lastly, affordability, making sure that The rent, the mortgage is within the budget of the family, and we know that there's lots of folks who have very limited incomes, so finding housing that fits a very tight budget is often difficult. So our speakers today represent from the emergency shelter side to the affordable home ownership side. And we've asked them to cover a few different issues. First of all, to talk about the type of housing that they are involved with. And then tell us about who often lives in that type of housing, who a client is. Let's understand who who needs this type of housing. And then also what they see as the housing and health connection. And then last but not least, if they have time in their 10 minutes, talk about the policy and programmatic and funding environment associated with that particular type of housing. So it's a tall order. All of these professionals spend 40 plus hours a week focusing on each of these issues and we're asking them to consolidate their breadth of knowledge into 10 minutes but our hope is to give you a good overview of their work so first we are going to start with katie gentry and katie works for the maricopa association of governments so welcome katie thanks for thanks for joining us Thanks, CJ. Like CJ said, I work for Maricopa Association of Governments as a human services planner for the Continuum of Care. So the Continuum is really in charge of looking at how 
regionally we can address homelessness. And so we bring in HUD funding locally. We have about $26 million throughout Maricopa County and really are trying to figure out how can we solve homelessness on a broader level. So that's why I'm really talking about temporary housing and what does that look like in our system and then I'll pass it over to talk more about permanent solutions. But a lot of the things that we're looking at is how can we have a housing plan that really looks at where are people going to end up long term rather than just temporarily. So I'm going to start with emergency shelter. It's really an immediate response to somebody who is presenting as experiencing homelessness. It's the first stop shop. Um, there are plenty of shelters throughout the valley. Most of them are pretty limited in services, so they're going to try and get you connected with other services throughout the valley. All of them have different rules and different barriers, but most require you to leave during the day. It's only a place to rest your head at night. We have very small shelters from only sheltering two or three people all the way up to your, your biggest shelter in the valley that houses 430 on every night basis. So if you look at kind of throughout the valley what each of them do differently, some have pros and cons, but Overall, it's going to be a one place. You can be there for a day. You can be there for up to 30 days. And they're really looking at where can we take care of your need for that night of if you're not sleeping there, you're probably going to be sleeping out on the streets. Just a few nights ago, we did the point in time count, which is an annual survey that happens that goes and surveys every individual experiencing homelessness. And it was really cold. It was 38 degrees that morning. And so if you're staying in a shelter, you wouldn't be out on the streets having to deal with that, having to be worried about your safety and other things. Um, you're instead in a shelter. Throughout the valley, we have about uh, just over 1,200 shelter beds on any given night. Some of the challenges, though, is you do have communicable diseases that are going throughout, especially on your bigger shelters, but it is stopping from better than being on the streets is those um, kind of stressful situations go down a little bit when you're in a shelter, not quite as well as a long-term home of your own. So these are the shelters throughout the valley. Um, we kind of divide them into three different subsections. So you have shelters specifically for single adults, um, you have shelters for family and youth, and then you have domestic violence shelters, which are going to um, keep you if you're a domestic violence victim. Throughout the valley, they're spread out throughout the valley. CAST is going to be like your largest shelter in downtown Phoenix, all the way over to Phoenix Dream Center, which is on the west side off of the 60. I help Chandler, which is going to be a smaller one run by churches in the East Valley. Families and youth, a lot of them also throughout the valley spread out. Dee Dee runs one for home base that she'll talk about a little bit later. And then your domestic violence providers are going to be all tag teamed together through centralized screening, which is a hotline to call if you are a domestic violence victim. Those are also undisclosed locations, but they are spread out throughout the valley. Kind of contrary to that, which is a little bit more long term, is going to be your transitional housing. So transitional housing is typically you can be there for up to six months depending on the funding source. Let me quickly go back to emergency shelter is going to be funded by, it's federally funded, state funded, locally funded by cities, and then you also have private funding. So a lot of ones are run by churches or volunteers. iHelps are going to be more, it's going to be a seven churches coming together to rotate the location and be run by volunteers with supportive services attached. And then your bigger shelters like CAS are going to be more federally funded or uh, 
government funded agencies as well as private donations. Transitional housing is going to be a longer term strategy. It's really meant to bridge the gap between homelessness and a more permanent solution, whether that be rapid rehousing or permanent supportive housing, home ownership, whatever that next step may be. It's a lot more structurally supportive and there's a lot more supportive services attached. So they're going to do more hands-on case management with you, working through what are your specific issues and how can they get you connected to other resources such as employment or benefits. Longer term, there's a little bit more stability. Typically, they know your they know the clients a little bit better and so they're able to help with specific issues, whether it be like medically or kind of vulnerabilities. You're not necessarily, your transitional shelter, you'll be able to stay there during the day more than likely, which means that you're having a more well-rounded view to your health. You're not only there from 7 p.m. to 8 a.m. You're gonna be able to stay during the day and address it, your needs from a well-rounded perspective. There are limitations in who is eligible for transitional housing and what programs, there's higher barriers for those programs. So some of them you have to be a veteran or you have to be a family or you have to follow more rules typically because it is a longer term program. Again, spread out throughout the valley, some are bigger than and some are smaller. You do see an increase in families and youth on transitional versus emergency because there's less, families typically need more support with that transitional housing. The domestic violence providers also have a transitional, they're more hands-on than their emergency shelters are. The last kind of program I'll talk about is rapid rehousing, which is kind of one step below permanent supportive housing and it's giving individuals some rental subsidy and supportive services before they would take on their own rent individually. Rapid rehousing is going to typically start with the provider paying the majority of the rent and over time the client would take over their rent. So for example, they would start by paying 90% of the rent and by month six, they would be paying 0% of the rent and you would be equipping the client to be able to take on the rent themselves and be employed and have be connected to the correct benefits that they would be set up for success. With that also comes that supportive services piece so they're able to work through all the necessary client issues or what it looks like to be in housing and how to get connected to transportation and other things as well as helping the client to really establish a new sense of community within the apartment. The last thing that they can do is also pay any deposits or first and last month's rent like to get them up on their feet again. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Katie. So next we will hear from Dee Dee Devine who is with Native American Connections. Um, really accomplished professional and we're really lucky to have her here today. Dee Dee, I'll turn things over to you. Thank you for having me today. Native American Connections has been in the Valley almost 50 years. You can see this is our corporate office and we're right on along the light rail. We have 22 sites. Most of them are in Phoenix and most of them are central Phoenix. And we had a very specific strategy of being along transportation corridors, particularly the light rail. I didn't want to add residential substance abuse treatment as part of the continuum of housing because it is temporary housing. A lot of people coming into alcohol and drug treatment are homeless. And so we have a period of time of providing them a whole body, a whole health experience of recovery, and then having time to um, work on some of the strategies Katie was talking about and getting them 
uh, not going back out into the streets, but going to housing. This is the Patina Wellness Center. It's very near the Herd Museum. It's 70 beds. We have a cultural perspective. We design culturally. This is our talking circle room. You'll see sweat lodges on our campus. And so there's a whole emphasis of architectural design that promotes healing and wellness as well. And we allow our parents to bring their women and children into residential drug treatment, which is highly unusual. And so we're reuniting families, even in, if you were look, to look at the removal of children, one of the significant barriers is substance abuse of the parents. And so we're always looking at removing the children, but what is the care that parents are getting? And we do that. So I wanted people to realize that residential drug treatment is part of that continuum of housing. We're building another 55 bed facility at that site. Anybody know that site? Mm -hmm. That's a fire, yeah. We had a lot of opposition. We just had to get a use permit, but we were successful and NIMBYism will come into one of my slides later on of one of our barriers, but we're gonna build a beautiful new facility there, another 55 beds of residential recovery services and then 55 homeless units of housing on that site. Uh, we also, I didn't put it in here, but the sober living homes, you know, there's a whole ordinance, new ordinance about sober living homes. I realize we have lots of them. Those are people, lots of people coming out of the criminal justice system, lots of people in drug recovery. They need somewhere to go. And so those sober living homes are part of that continuum of housing. So we're a community development organization. We came to housing mainly from healthcare, providing behavioral health services, and then people saying we need a safe, affordable place to live where we can begin getting jobs and taking care of our families. So as a community development organization, we go into neighborhoods and revitalize neighborhoods. This is 9th Street and Indian School. Next picture is what it is now. This is permanent supportive housing for chronic homeless individuals. And this is in Canto Point, and so this is 55 beds. We opened in 2013. We were one of Arizona's first specifically designed housing first homeless housing community. And so United Way studied our clients. We reduced their emergency room visits by 85% in the very first year. And we reduced their criminal justice involvement to zero. So it was a good example of how permanent supportive housing can change the lives of our community socially, but fiscally responsibly as well. That was the beginning of the data to try to encourage healthcare industry to look at supportive housing as one of those social determinants and as an inexpensive way to really change their healthcare outcome as well. We have a single point of entry, and that's in the architectural design. How do you make it safe? A single point of entry. This is one of our units, one of our tenants. Uh, this is Stepping Stone. This is about 14th Street, McDowell. 82 units. We're building another 42 right now on the same site. And here at this site in particular, we have units very specifically for people living with HIV and AIDS. Again, providing the medical support services they need to be healthy in our community. And that integration of behavioral health, medical health, and I have to add oral health because we forget about the oral health needs of sometimes of our patients. So, and at Access, we're talking a lot about integration of behavioral health and uh, physical health, but oral health is equally as important. This Camelback Point, you're looking always, you're kind of seeing the light rail in the background. We're really looking about building on uh, transportation corridors because transportation to services and particularly medical care is really important. Another permanent supportive housing. 
So we uh, have uh, the only homeless shelter for youth right now that's dedicated specifically for youth. Other shelters provide shelter for you know young people, but it's in the broader context. Home base is 25 beds for homeless youth, and it's relatively short term, less than six months. Uh, youth at our shelter don't need to leave during the day, which is a big difference between uh, some of the other shelters where people have to leave during the day. We have a commercial kitchen. We feed them three meals a day, seven days a week. And so uh, their goals are initially be safe, get off the streets, improve your health care, settle in, and then um, it's either getting your education. Do you know if a youth gets their GED, goes back and gets their GED at this age? they have a 40% chance of ever being homeless again, a 60% chance of not becoming homeless. If they go back and get their high school diploma, it's 90% chance of never being homeless again. So we're really focusing, we decided to take a step back and say, boy, if we can get their high school diploma or their GED, we're gonna do that. And so this shelter sort of becomes transitional housing to keep them engaged in that educational effort and if they already have their GED then or their diploma we go right into employment training workforce development and training so right next door I don't think the slides in here but we're renovating another apartment complex called Saboro Key and that'll be a rapid rehousing situation where youth can go from the shelter right into a transitional housing supported with rental assistance and then hopefully by that time into a market rate unit. Now where I'm talking about affordable side, this is affordable housing for low-income families. Uh, Sally, you'll probably talk about dollar amounts and stuff like that, but this is Divine Legacy. It's right on light rail. Rents start at $450 a month. Right next door, one bedroom, same one bedroom units, $1,200 a month. Just an example of a, a father who actually was homeless at home base, uh, got a job, and now is a father, reclaimed his daughter who was in the child protective system, has a good job, works, lives at Divine Legacy, raising his family. Urban Living on Second, right downtown Phoenix, same thing, affordable housing. Rents start at $450 a month. Downtown, rents start at about $1,800 a month. So we're able to provide affordability and if you notice right across the street somewhere oh we're uptown we're midtown uh, right across the street from here we're building another 74 units of affordable housing right across the street so that'll open up probably in the fall and um, I think we built 4,000 market rate units in the downtown area in the last three or four years and we're the only affordability right downtown so what this does is uh, gives people a chance to live and work, you know, near their jobs. We don't want to be a city that has our service industry not able to live near their employment. So we're really working hard to keep our affordability in the areas where there's so much market rate housing. Uh, and uh, we just run a summer camp. One of the things people forget about during the summertime, uh, families are generally earning, I'm going to say, Sally, 20000 to 40000 mm -hmm. kind of the sweet spot. So those families, 20000 40000 when summer's out, they don't always have the money for childcare, so we're always running summer camps. So in our affordable communities, our services are focused on the health of the children. And then when you're talking about financing projects, you have to look at ca the capital cost. 
We need capital for increasing the affordable housing stock. We need money for long-term operations and then resident services. You have to think of all three of them at the same time. And then financing, our projects are financed with low-income housing tax credit, LITAC. It's a federal program through the state of Arizona using private equity investment. The Arizona Community Foundation now has a community development fund with LISC and other banks and its foundation and, and foundation, its pre-development, a revolving loan fund with pre-development, zero interest, and then they have now long-term low-cost loans. Uh, we use state and city home and CDBG funds, the HUD federal dollars, the we're provider for the MAG continuum of care on the service side, the Federal Home Loan Bank, we belong to the San Francisco Federal Home Loan Bank. They have a HP program, uh, affordable housing program, and for nonprofits, it is our soft loans uh, that support the low-income housing tax credit and the housing trust fund. Mo lots of cities have housing trust funds, the states and the federal. Uh, we're working on our state housing trust fund. You'll see that in one of my slides. Uh, some of the financing, we're beginning to see financing coming from healthcare organizations because they're beginning to see that it's a cost savings to them on the social determinants, housing being one of them. We're providing facility capital and long-term rental assistance. Mercy Maricopa has, uh, I'll just example at Camelback Point, they pre-capitalized the rental assistance for 13 units during the length of the tax credit period. So they have 13 apartments for 15 years that they pre-capitalized the rental assistance for their homeless SMI clients. We need service funds for case management, life skills, Medicaid billable. So we're a behavioral health organization and so there are some services that are billable both for seriously mentally ill and substance abuse. So trying to maximize and leverage those Medicaid billable services that uh, members are eligible for. But if you're engaging somebody off the streets and they're still substance using or they have serious mental illness, they don't have to engage in services. I mean, that's a client member choice. So you might not be able to use Medicaid services. So a lot of engagement to get them to a point where they're going to accept that help and then it becomes billable. And then we use every, we probably have 30 to 50 nonprofit partners leveraging. We know what we do best and we know what we don't do. Uh, Fresh Express, uh, the food banks, the workforce development agencies. I mean, we partner with anybody that we don't do it and we have a service gap. And then one more slide, I think. So just housing issues, the NIMBY issue, you know, we struggle. Every property that we have, the property values around our properties go up. People think there's an affordable housing going in or a homeless housing community or even drug treatment, their values are gonna go down. And every single property we've ever built, property values go up, crime goes down. Those are the three things neighborhoods, we generally have to convince the neighborhood that we're gonna increase their property values, we're gonna reduce crime, and we're gonna respond to their needs when they want it. And if we have time to do that, we're successful. <laughs> so there's a new interpretation of property tax exemption with our county assessor, does anybody know? Paul Peterson? No. Okay, I won't do that, but it's a risk, significant reduction of housing trust fund where you're trying to restore the housing trust fund. Uh, other states have long-term dedicated state legislative resources to end homelessness, and we need to do that. Wow, a mouthful, and then some. Thank you, Dee Dee. Thanks, CJ, and a big thank you to Maricopa Association of Governments, Katie Gentry, 
as well as Dee Devine from Native American Connections. That's part one of our journey along the housing continuum. Stay tuned. Part two, featuring Gorman and Company's Sally Schwen and Patricia Duarte from Trellis, is headed your way next. To make sure you get it, reach into your podcast app right now and subscribe to The Vitalist Spark. As always, remember this, with great responsibility comes great power. We'll see you back on the road to well-being soon. Mm-hmm.